Just wanna put you in my cabeza. So I, so I check my baggage while I'm sitting. Wagaran yung kukuli rente. Chop, chop, chop it up. Chop, chop, chop it up. Chop, chop, chop it up. Chop, 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 chop it up. Hello. Yeah, Damon's not here. We're doing a little bit of a different thing this week. Um, I'm in New York and Damon's still in Chicago. So we're each doing a one-on-one interview with a friend, someone who. We maybe haven't had a chance to get up on the show. Um, Damon's talking with Allende Cartman, and I'm here with a good friend and a person whose mind I'm very interested in, and I'm excited to get into that. Um, he's a music maker, a writer, a thinker, a old, old friend. Um, it's going to be an hour of mostly just inside jokes that you're not going to get. <laughs> so, so down. That we barely find funny, <laughs> but have been doing for so long. Um, I'm excited to have you. Zoran Mamdani. Thank folks. you, my man. Woo! Thank you. Yeah. Woo! Woo! <laughs> we, we don't have a soundboard. Yeah, so the acoustics of my bedroom. <laughs> this is Eric. Oh, this is Ergo Studio G. Yeah. Now, my bedroom's B. We have like three other ones. So, this, this is, is G. Studio G. Hey. Um, we're gonna send you a plaque in the mail. Please, <laughs> I can put it up next to all the books I read when I was seven years old. Oh, they're still up. Oh, you do yeah. have. A, let's see. Okay, so before we get shout to the to the library, shout out to I Spy. I shout out to Aragon. Um, we like to start every episode with, uh, "How are you treating the world today, and how is the world treating you in this moment?" Okay, <clears throat> uh, I'm gonna go with today. I think I'm treating the world pretty well today. Um, I woke up a little late and ran up to Riverdale, to your area of the world, Squad. to uh, tutor, tutor this kid on uh, on the differences between uh, the French Revolution and the English Glorious Revolution. Mm. Differences I found out in real time <laughs> while while tutoring. Shout outs, shout outs to Miss Goodman. Um, and then afterwards, I uh, got my haircut at 168th. Um, which has that fucking horrible elevator that I always get like nervous. <laughs> but I mean, like it's probably not gonna, it's probably not gonna get stuck because it has to be used so mm-hmm. often. But still, it doesn't inspire confidence. Yeah. And uh, I found that the dude who was giving me a haircut, his hand felt mad good on my head when he mm-hmm. was giving me the haircut. So I told him to just keep cutting. <laughs> And now my hair is mad short just because the human Cause you, cessation of touch is so good. Because you can't be like, all right, it's it's short enough, but can you, would you mind just resting your, your, your head behind my ears? My hair looked better like 30 minutes before the end. And I was just like, nah, son, like, just keep going. It is like one of the only spaces where like non-sexual man-to-man intimacy is just expected. Oh. I love it's that. It's like shit. a very <laughs> intimate relationship. <laughs> Shout out to you. What's your barber's name? I don't know his name. <laughs> He's a new wow. guy. It was more of like a casual thing. Yeah, he asked me if I speak Spanish. I said no. And then I did hand movements about short and long for mm-hmm. the sides and the top. And um, he gave me his card, but I haven't looked at the card yet. Mm. Um, 
Or shout out to him. Yeah, shout out to him. Shout so, out to the homie. And the last piece, how is the world treating you? So yeah, I think the the world's treating me well. Um, my dude's hands <laughs> treated my head pretty well. <laughs> Sounds weirder if I come back to it again. Um, no, the world's treating me pretty well today. Um, I've applied to a bunch of jobs. Um, I'm waiting on hearing from them, uh, which is always such a, yeah. a great time. Um, and you know, I have another tutoring gig in the afternoon um and then i'm gonna go see some old friends for dinner so i'd say i'd say it's pretty good it's uh it's an interesting time you know like we're what are we like 25 24 26 Mm -hmm. that at that time and i'm like figuring out like what the next steps are and so some days just getting an email means the world is treating you great yeah and some days when you're refreshing and you got no emails except for you know Emirates being like, yo, you want to drop $10,000? You got a new first class seat. And it's like, bro, like I told you to stop emailing me. What's the worst mailing list you're on? Is it the Emirates one? Because I, I, I still um, have like a couple like uh, vacation rentals where they're like, for $6,000, you can stay on this cliff in Scotland. And I'm like, well, I could. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I there's one thing that someone subscribed me to that I've tried to unsubscribe for a long time. I don't even know what it is exactly. It's like a classmates type of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and then I press unsubscribe, and then it's like enter your password. And it's like, dude, I never signed up for this, so <laughs> it's like they a, don't stop. A classic common. Uh, why do I need ID to get ID? If I had ID, I wouldn't need ID type mm. situation. But Beautiful. it's interesting you mentioned classmates. So going all the way back, so going we were back. close friends in high school, um, and have mm. you know in various ways uh, stayed connected. But I want to before we go back. And talk about uh, the evolution. I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the things that you're making now. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that's been kind of fun and interesting to watch you step into in the last year and a half or so, at least that I've been seeing, is becoming a music maker in a little bit more of a deliberate way. Um, You want to just give a quick rundown of like the entry point? Because I just, you know, I've known you for a long time and I've known you pretty closely and it wasn't really a thing that I knew is it something you've always been wanting to do I mean it's it's weird like when you look back on your story where you are in the present determines how you see things right so growing up I was never serious about it about music about rap in terms of creation of it but then when I look back there are like a lot of hints along the way right that I you know made a rap song to run for vice president uh, ultimately, an unsuccessful run. Shout outs to Moonjung. It was <laughs> Whooped m- my ass in that election. It was more of a statement campaign. <laughs> yeah. Trying to I, shift the conversation, I, you know. Move the needle. Yeah. I promised things that were simply impossible. What were a couple campaign promises? I promised fresh juice for everyone every day. Man. Using locally sourced fruits. <laughs> there are no locally sourced. <laughs> there was a supermarket like four minutes away. Oh, that's what you mean by local. Not, look, we didn't grow the oranges <laughs> no, around no, here, no. but we popped by the fine fair <laughs> exactly. and we got some. I promise that. Mm-hmm. I promise credits for going to after school games instead mm-hmm. of having to go to gym. For just going to the games? For just going to the games. I said that that would serve as credits. You don't have to play in the games. Nope. You just have to. Wow. I promised, uh, those are like two concrete promises that I had done no like viability study on. <laughs> and you um, did those in rap form. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which a lot of people enjoyed, but uh, Mr. Shore, who is our AP US history teacher, second year, after the rap uh, video was played, he came out and he was like, 
I just don't think that was the right decision. <laughs> it's like, yo, son, yeah. let me keep changing answers when you give our test back and I don't respond to you. <laughs> Mr. Shore really was quite a pundit. You know, he was armchair quarterbacking you and that's just not what you want your campaign manager to look like. <laughs> not at all. This was our social studies teacher. We, I promise the episode won't only be references to us in high school. But this man, have you ever seen the Schoolhouse Rock video of uh, Mr. Morton is the subject of the sentence and with the predicate says he does? Mr. Shore looks exactly like Mr. Morton. <laughs> like it is like spot on one to one. If dude. you were to make a recreation of Mr. Morton, he would have taught me APUS. Shout outs. I know I know Shore's listening somewhere. Hey, Shore Daddy. Uh, <laughs> but you sure about- <laughs> so oh. so yeah, I mean, so that was that was something I did. Then I also like, you know, I I wrote a song um for uh AP AP literature. Senior yeah. year, that was my final project. Salman Mojovic and I made a song, um, which consisted of me rapping over Still Dre at 2 a.m. Um, and it was, you know, I think I got a B plus. But yeah, I mean, basically, basically, it wasn't something that I seriously considered at all. Um, you know, I'd reached out to people about like beats and things like that, but I wasn't pursuing things past any failure. Yeah, like if if a first reach out didn't result in anything, I never pushed it. Um, then I was working on Queen of Katwe uh, in 2015. Um, and this guy who was like my brother, I grew up with him in Uganda, uh, which is where I was born and raised. Um, Abdul, which is, which is his name, he, we were working together on Queen of Katwe and he was saying, you know, I want to make this song. Um, and there's this producer around and, you know, I want to do it. And I was like, nah, this guy's just going to hustle you. Like we could, we could find somebody better. And eventually through our work, we did find this guy named Hans who was, uh, who was and is one of the most you know prominent hip hop producers in Uganda. We found him through work and he ended up um, loving the idea of the two of us doing something together. And Abdul really encouraged me to get in on it. And then we made a song uh, for a grand total of a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, studio time, recording, mixing, mastering, everything it was a hundred dollars, and um, it was just a blast. And it was a song about chapati, which is um, which is basically like a flatbread that uh, originated as you know an, an Indian and then an, like an Arab, um, me- like a, like a piece of bread you use to eat food. Mm-hmm. You know, like you use chapati in Indian food as like you know a means by scoop, which to scoop yeah. something up and eat and in kampala chapati's become its own food mm. like you just pay the equivalent of around like 20 cents for a huge beautifully greasy fat chapati damn and that could be lunch because that shit yeah. fills you up right yeah. so we made a jam about that and then like it came out while we were still working on the movie and like a lot of our friends fucked with it and um and then we ended up making a music video and that music video kind of did the rounds. Like it played on MTV Bass, which is like MTV Africa. Um, so yeah. we just, you know, we pushed it and we had a good time and we got a great reception. And then um, for family reasons, I had to go back to Uganda in February of the next year of 2016. And I decided, you know what, fuck it. Like let's, um, I have to be here for my family. There are like medical issues I have to take care of um, for family members. But, you know, I have a certain amount of hours in the day. Um, yeah. let me be let me be a rapper yeah. so we did that for like six seven months and now it's something that like is a part of my life wherever I am yeah so um, I want to talk about family we'll get back to the music but I want to talk about family a little bit I think before we talk about the work that each of your parents mm-hmm. 
do, which I think, you know, is part of the telling of you. Uh, just something that I've noticed through the years of being in your space here on 116th Street and being around your family is there, there's this like attentiveness to making sure that you are like taking care of people in the house and taking care of what needs to be done that I always kind of just wrote off in my head as an expectation that, that your parents had of you. Um, and I don't know whether that's true, but this idea of like, we have to be paying, you just like, it's, ah, I'm trying to figure out how to describe it. Yeah. This idea of like a certain amount of responsibility for taking care of the people around you in the space and like handling certain things and being kind of um, not deferential, but attentive to what other people need and, and, and kind of reflecting that. And I'm thinking about you making the choice or making the decision or feeling the pressure to go back and take care of some folks. Mm-hmm. How does that kind of caretaker mode work? For, do you think about it like that? Or how do you think about that role? I don't think it's a role that I've like played growing up or even generally like play as my first role. But I, but I think that in those months when I went back to Uganda, that was who I was. Mm. Um, and it was a new role for me. And you were know? like, this was like... 2016? This is 2016, um, February 1st to about, you know, yeah. August, let's say. And it was something It was something new to me because, like, you know, my family matters to me a lot and has always been, like, a core part of my life and my understanding of even of self. Um, but there's still a way in which we grow up, at least in which I grew up, in which I would rely on my parents for so much. Yeah. And then having you know, all of a sudden to, to provide as opposed to rely is a big switch. Mm. Um, and I think it's also, it's also a, it's, it's very tough, you know, um, but it's also a beautiful thing to be able to be there for your parents while they're still exactly who you remember them to be. Mm. You know, a lot of us have to be there for our parents once they become much older yeah. and become kind of different people. Yeah, but when you have to be there for them, and they're still very much resemble or are the people who you've grown up, yeah, who've been there for you, it's it's an interest. It's a yeah. really thing. I've heard it described like the whole journey of living is the process of realizing that your parents are real people themselves. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, even when they're you know closer to what you experienced or how you think of them. Uh, it's still this process of like them moving from just being a relationship to you to being a full person, figuring things out. Um, and I think I could imagine that being, you know, for you, and maybe this is a good time to bring it in, you know, what each of your parents do. Your mom yes. is a filmmaker. Uh, your dad is a scholar and thinker and writer and academic, both of whom. And you can, you know, I, again, I want to make this is about you. This isn't about them. Um, but they both have done, you know, large scale, important, uh, somewhat you know, large-scale, important, groundbreaking work. So there's the relationship between you and them, and then there's the relationship between you and, like, the way that they're understood in the world. Mm-hmm. Has that been, like, a tension for you? Like, did, is there, like, a cognitive dissonance between the relationship between you and them and you and, like, how the world thinks of them being? Well, I mean, I think the similarities in, in those two things are that, like, I think the world of my parents, mm-hmm. and, and, and a lot of people feel similarly about some of the things that they've created. Uh, not including myself. What <laughs> like I love them. I hate my mom's movies. <laughs> no, but you know, I mean, I'm literally alive because of my parents' work. Mm-hmm. Like my mom was making a movie, and because she was making this movie called Mississippi Masala, mm-hmm. 
she found my dad. Starring my boy Denzel Washington. Starring him. What up? And because she was making this movie, she wanted to speak to my dad who had written a book. You know, he'd written the, the, the closest book that was related to this was From Citizen to Refugee, which was the only book he's written that's really not an academic text, mm. more of a, a reflection uh, about the last 90 days in Uganda for Asian Ugandans and the first 90 days as refugees in England, mm. right? Because our family was kicked out in 1972. Um, so, so I exist because of their works, which right. is, which is wild, but, um, like I've grown up loving them and also having them be a part of my life. Their, their works, not just them. Right. Um, I mean, the cognitive, this, the cognitive dissonance is that like, I like, they're just my parents. Right. You know what I mean? Like I still argue with them, joke right. with them, like say ridiculous shit with them. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, the, the world only has like two dimensional understandings mm-hmm. of people um, who are in the public eye to some extent. Yeah. So, those things sometimes clash. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's uh, let's talk specifically. But we've talked more about in the past your mom's work than about your dad's together. We I don't remember really ever having that conversation. And I've you know read a little bit of mm-hmm. some of his stuff. Read some of Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. Your dad, Mahmoud Mamdani. Uh, Shout out to God. Yeah, <laughs> my dude. <laughs> Thanks for paying rent on this place. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. um, at what point did you first start reading his work? First time I properly read something was in college. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I That's grew wild. up. Yeah, I grew up like going to his lectures, like mm-hmm. book talk, book launches, that kind of stuff. So, like, I heard a lot of the main arguments of a lot of the pieces, you know. Mm-hmm. But my favorite is still from Citizen to Refugee mm-hmm. um, because it's it's probably his most unknown work, I would say, um, because it's it's just like a reflection of who he is mm-hmm. and and coming to terms with like a radically changing political situation and mm-hmm. what it means for what it means to become a refugee. Yeah. You know, like that's, that's wild. Right. Um, in 180 days, you know, um, and the realization that like, you might be a leftist, you might be like a hardcore leftist, Asian Ugandan, but you're still Asian. You know what I mean? You're still the same as the conservative ass Asian dude. That categorization doesn't get you. You're still an Asian. So, Yeah, everybody can't get on the plane. <laughs> you know, nobody gives a fuck if you like They're not like, <laughs> like, all right, I'm going through customs. What's your ideology? Yeah, Though they do ask that, actually, on some yeah. level in some places. But yeah, I hear what you're you saying. Know, when, so, it's a, when it's a race-based expulsion, yeah. everybody's getting fucked. Yeah. So I, I really, I mean, that's also, it's also wild because that book is also about, like, my, my family and my grandparents and, like, you know, learning things about my grandparents that, like, I just didn't know. Like, uh, mm-hmm. Like the ways in which expulsion can really shatter a family, yeah, you know, and the ways in which losing your home can really shatter a family and a, and a person. Like, for example, my grandfather was a fully employed, he was an auctioneer. Mm. That was my grandfather's job in Uganda. And then he went, after the expulsion in 72, he never worked again. Um, just never really had the same sense of purpose mm. after that day. And like hearing about how he and my grandmother would go to Heathrow every Sunday to watch the planes take off to Uganda. It's just heartbreaking, yeah. you know, that they would just sit there and long to go on that plane and I they'd go they and could. just watch them every week. And it's just like, there's all this emotional aspect of, uh, of being a refugee that we don't often see because we're often just being hit with numbers and boat yeah. collapses and, Border patrols and right. these kinds of things, and you don't think about that. Even if we, even once you do make it somewhere, right. 
right. you have to deal with the fact that you had no choice in leaving. Yeah. No, I mean, they're just now starting to like kind of have social science ideas about like what home actually means in terms yeah. of people's understanding. And I think, you know, outside of the direct context, it's an interesting thing to think about for you, right? As someone who's lived in a bunch of different places and, you know, I always thought, and you, because I remember you saying, like, when college ended, like, you were leaving the U.S. Yeah. That was the plan. And I know you, you know, you said you grew up in Kampala. First off, before we get to the emotion of it, like, for someone who's never been to Kampala, like, what are a couple, like, sights and sounds and smells and things that stick out in your mind? So for me, like, Kampala is one of the one of the greatest places on earth. And it's not really known that well. I mean, shout outs to, you know, <laughs> the tourism department of Uganda. Um, they're trying. Yeah, they're really eating all that money up. But anyway, um, I think one of the one of the greatest things about Kampala is um, there's always music playing. Mm. Always. Um, which is awesome. Yeah. Bars, clubs, guys who are making bootleg CDs full of the latest hits. Like everybody's playing music. Yeah. Um, so you, it's rare to hear silence mm. in Kampala. You know, we're also, I think it's the second largest freshwater lake in the world, Lake Victoria. Mm. We also have that as part of our city. Oh, you just threw that in uh, like real cat. You, you know, know, just like the second. <laughs> just, I mean, I don't mean to brag, but <laughs> yeah, you big up you, your game, Hudson. <laughs> yeah, you're like, you think these lakes, these lakes are so great? <laughs> <laughs> the Great Lakes, my ass, like come through. No, I did learn the Great Lakes are the second largest freshwater source in the world. So I see Lake I just Victoria. Say? You said it's just the largest lake. The Second fresh largest lakes. freshwater lake. But you, I guess, Great it's not lakes, a source. Multiple lakes. Uh, yeah, yeah. We got like eight la- <laughs> no, a five lakes. a squad of lakes. Five <laughs> lakes. <laughs> I got eight lakes in the back. You want to fuck with me? My starting five. <laughs> lake Huron. <laughs> lake Superior. That shit is superior. <laughs> um, I'm going to give you a pass on that horrible thanks. joke. <laughs> so, but what's the, uh, like... So, so... Then there's also, like... Just personal landmarks, though. Like personal just, landmarks yeah. for me? Okay. There's a joint named Dukem which is in a part of the city called Kabaragara. Um, now, America has bastardized this term of diversity because mm-hmm. here it just basically means non-white people, Yeah. right? So if it's a whole room of Indian people and one white person, the white person would be like, this room is so diverse. It's a very diverse it's like, room. That's, not, visit, yeah. that's not true. <laughs> There's yeah. everybody else the same. Yeah. So in Uganda... It's like, oh, I feel not completely in control <laughs> right now. This must be what diversity is. <laughs> So Uganda is one of the most, like if you're actually going by what diversity, I think in its essence means in terms of people from different places and different backgrounds, is one of the most diverse places um, in terms of tribal background. And also there's a lot of people from the surrounding region in in Kampala. Like we're talking about people from Somalia, people from South Sudan, uh, people from Congo. And so there's this one part of Kampala called Kabaragara. And Kabaragara is like the home of nightlife and the home of street food, mm. right? And so there's this one Ethiopian restaurant called Dukem that I go to all the fucking time. Um, and that is just like my joint. So if you're in the neighborhood, stop by, tell yeah. them your <laughs> sent you. <laughs> tell, tell them your boy sent you. Um, and I just like, I love having places where I walk in and like I can dap up the person yeah. who's like running the joint. Like it's, like it's my neighborhood spot. Like yeah. Dukem is that spot for me. Um and like we don't even have to order like it just we like because we order the same thing every time yeah. right another spot that i really love is um we used to record a lot of our music out in a part of Kampala called Intinda which is about an hour away from where i live and 
it's another food spot. It's called The Chef. <laughs> so dope. <laughs> the Chef. And that food was like, it was a little pricey in terms of Kampala. Um, it was 10,000 shillings for lunch, which if you want to understand it in terms of purchasing power, I would just make that $10. That's right. not what it actually converts to, mm-hmm. but that's how it feels when it leaves your pocket. Right. Uh, so it's a little pricier if you're doing it every day. But uh, but it's the chef. But I it's mean, the chef. You know what I'm saying? It's the chef. You pay a little like, more for the chef. Yeah. And like a couple of waitresses had some crushes on me. Okay. And would hook me up with a free chapati every now oh, and then. Shout goodness. out to my girl Stella. Well, once you made the theme song. Yeah. You know. It was like, <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Roll up there. <laughs> with the song playing. Um, We'd hear our song in the most random places. One time there was a guy running for local office who used our song as his theme song. <laughs> She was wild. That like was great. Like my boy Abdul be walking through this area, this neighborhood called Chibuli, and he hear himself yeah. singing as this dude went by in a truck advertising his own election campaign. That's wild. <laughs> it's like yeah, this is dope. So uh, let's talk about making music there because so hip hop is so place based, right? Yeah. Like you are not just like representing your city, but like speaking to and of and for the place that you come from and everything you've made. That's what it feels like um, more so than anywhere else, at least from the bits I've heard. Mm. Like it feels like you are speaking of and to and from uh, there when you, you know, because of, because the music spread larger and because of the relationship with the film and now doing other stuff, um, people outside of that context have interacted with the music does it feel like there's anything that people are mis- missing or misunderstanding about how it fits into the to, to the place? Well, I think I think like there's you can only ever get a certain amount if you're not from where something is created. Yeah, um, but I think that's fine. Like there's so much music I grew up loving and I didn't understand all of it. Yeah, but it was just like whatever I did understand really connected with. Yeah. Me. So a lot of the music we make, it has first of all like we're speaking in sometimes like four to five different languages, mm-hmm. right? Which it's not like oh if you're from Kampala you're, if you're from Kampala you're gonna get it it's like if you're from Kabaragara in Kampala like if you're from this one neighborhood right and your friends are right. <laughs> South Sudanese Somali yeah. you know Indian Ugandan all these if you things, have the <laughs> same friends as us it's really just us yeah. like sometimes there's songs that we make that only we will fully understand yeah um, and I won't even fully understand Abdul's verse because right. we don't speak the same languages right. but we know we're talking about the same thing yeah so there are things that definitely get lost in translation as uh, as it gets you know further spread out but I think the emotion never got lost and the intentions of what we're trying to do I mean a lot of my friends in New York would hit me up and be like yo like what the fuck is this about like you know <laughs> or like what the fuck are you saying and that and at first I'd be like oh shit like they They're don't get it get like it. Da, 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 da. and then I was like this isn't actually for my friends in New York right and that's like why like when I'm making a song here like I'm thinking about the things that I listen to and think about in New York City on a day-to-day mm. basis. I'm not thinking about like continuing the brand, you know, yeah, or like yeah. some shit like that. Like these are different places and different sounds. Um, there are, you know, songs that cross over, but they still have, they, they get different meanings when yeah. they come over. Sometimes though, I think it can be easier to write about a place when you're not physically there. Like I remember we, we spent a lot of time talking about Heems together. Yeah. And he talked about like not being able to, if you haven't listened to You Pray Thug, you're going to mm. have to skip it forward a couple minutes or just go listen to the project and then come back. But like the whole structure of like going and then coming back and then being able to, while coming back, write about being there and write about the city differently, yeah. write about being back in New York differently um, and saying that like he wouldn't have been, you know, the songs that are about New York, he couldn't write 
until he went there and then came back. Yeah. And it makes me think, I talk about this, I've mentioned this on the show before, but there's this William Maxwell book I read in college called So Long, See You Tomorrow. And he talks about walking down this main street in the small town in Illinois he's from. And he's like 70. And he goes, uh, everything looked different, but even if nothing had changed, it would nothing would look the same. So it's like, even if everything had stayed the so same. So you're saying... Drake got his album title from William mm-hmm. Maxwell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So culture long. vulture daddy out I know, here, right? Oh, so you know, you haven't heard this, but on last week's episode, we did a real Drake uh, critique, which was pointing out that he's just following the LL Cool J prototype, and LL Cool J is the worst. You don't like Cool J? Go back and listen to Accidental Racist on last week's episode, the song with Brad Paisley. The, uh, I mean, that shit is that's no good. That name already is whack as fuck. Wait till you, well, you just, after we turn the, I can't. You just wait. I'm not going to play Accidental Racist every week on this show, but I do think it's important that the people hear this. Okay. Also, like, you know that in 20 years, Drake's going to be, like, playing a cop on NCIS. Like, that is the the pipeline. A hundred percent. I just think that the line for Drake is more going to be along the lines of, like, where Jay-Z ends up in terms wow, of Wow, like, that I think you're just, bla- I, I want to throw my recording out the window right now nah, because I think you are just. Not in terms of like how I see him or his place in hip hop, but, but in terms of like, he's going to be still, he's going to be, you know, not a game show host or a dance show host or a lip sync show host, but he's going to be like he's LL a, cool a Don. J, he's LL Cool J meets Wayne Brady. That's who drinks. <laughs> Not who he's gonna end up being though. <laughs> Absolutely. I think I if, think if you say that because you mean that Chappelle's gonna come back, make another season, and there's gonna be a dope ass show with Think Drake. about how you could substitute the Wayne Brady character in that sketch and how fun what was funny about that? If you had Drake play that same character, it would be equally funny. But I think Wayne Brady is more one note than Drake has ever been. Wayne Brady got his start on cruise ships. I learned that recently. Shout out to the Champs episode with Wayne Brady. <laughs> His parents are also from Trinidad. Anyway, let's get back to you. Okay. <laughs> so you're 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 making music in yeah. in Kampala, and I want to talk a little bit about how that stuff started to spread. And I think the entry point into that is let's talk about your mom. Now we talked about your pops a little yeah. bit. I've heard you joke in interviews when you were on Beats One, joke about <laughs> you said nepotism for the win. Yeah, nepotism uh, and hard work. <laughs> it's a good combination. A it's a very effective yeah. combo. But your mom is a you know acclaimed filmmaker and has made big movies in yeah. the role that you Harry stepped Potter into. Harry Potter one, two, three, and four. Shoutouts. No, yeah, that wasn't, wasn't us. <laughs> Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Casablanca. <laughs> you know my mom's been in this game since day one, bro. Who you think made Avatar? You think it was James Cameron? Not fuck that shit. Avatar's an Indian word. It's a racer. It's a racer. Is what it is. <laughs> um, but your mom made Fast and Furious. <laughs> too fast. Too f- sorry. Okay, the fast joke's over. Three. <laughs> the fate of the furious. I did a a Fast and the Furious marathon recently. I only Why, got. Yo? I wanted to see what it would do to my brain. I only got through the first four. I had to stop after that. I, honestly, I think those movies are trash. We'll have to disagree on this one as well. (laughs) I think they're fantastic. And I think you were talking about the true meaning of diversity. I think that's the purest example about it. (laughs) Um, But your mom, you know, made Mississippi Masala, Monsoon Wedding, Namesake, Queen of Kato, Amelia, all a whole bunch of, you know, she is of a, she's one of the people who, when they're publicizing the movie, it says a Mira Nair film. True that, true that. Um, and and you stepped into the role of music supervisor mm-hmm. or one of the music supervisors mm-hmm. on Queen of Katsu. And I remember hearing right around when you started doing that, we hung out. Um, and you were talking about how kind of exciting and challenging uh, that was. 
I think it's an interesting role for you. I know you maybe have moved away from it, but at, first off, like, was there internal tension about about the nepotism piece? Definitely, man. I mean, you have to like, we all have our like internal contradictions, right? But like, rarely do you have to like wrestle with them. You usually kind of keep them separate so that you can continue to exist. Not if you have a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> if you have a podcast every day. But go on. So like, you know, I'm a guy who cares heavily about like social justice and organizing and 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 rail against, you know, the fixed nature of a lot of aspects of society. And yet I'm also, you know, coming from a wealthy family benefiting from uh, nepotism and networks and things like that. Mm-hmm. So how do you deal with all of that? I mean, my personal decision, I don't think, I think everyone can make their own. My personal one was just a question of, okay, if I don't do this, will it be for the worse of the movie or like, am I adding something to what I'm doing? Mm. You know what I mean? And that comes off a little arrogant, but I think you have to remember that there's like, in the case of being a co-music supervisor, I really don't think there's anybody who knows Ugandan music and is fluent in, you know, the working world of post-production and within a within a American a, film American context, studio yeah. film, like so. If I didn't do that, I knew that in that case there was going to be very different music in the film. Yeah, right. And so I didn't have any qualms with that because, like, at the end of the day, I don't care if people look at it a certain way or not. Like, I care the fact that there's a song called "Eno Mike" by Ziggy D, which is like the late night club anthem in Kampala for the last 10 years is playing in Queen of Godway, a Disney movie. Mm. And it's like, you wouldn't know that song unless you were out at 3 a.m. Yeah. A lot of nights, you know, and yeah. that song comes on and it's just like wild. Yeah. Um, like respect to all the music supervisors out there, but I think a lot of people are operating from an American sensibility. Yeah. Um, so I was confident about that decision. I mean, there are other, there, the, you know, there, there are other times where it's it's less clear. That, like what? Like, um, I mean, just like in the beginning, like working on the film, like I don't have an expertise working as, um, you know, as a casting associate or as a third AD or things like that. I don't have that experience. So, in and, and I can't say definitively before I take the position that I'm going to, you know, have a... Right benefit to the production that no one else could provide but you can say that you probably won't be fired (laughs) yeah i mean that's the thing i mean like the the thing is is you have to like my view about privilege is you have to use it you can't just feel guilty about it not like you but uh, that let me explain what that means if you can use it to further something that's good yeah then it's better doing that than just hand wringing so you can stay feeling pure for sure no but Um, it's but it's also complicated and this is something i've been talking about a lot Yes, and it's complicated when you benefit from it, right? Oh, definitely. Because then you tell yourself that everything you're doing is for the better. Right. right? You get this there's this sanctimoniousness. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you have to you have to deal with all of that. I mean, I like I know and I will never forget that like the opportunities I've had, a lot of them are through the grace of who my parents are and the networks yeah. that we have, right? Um and so I think you you can't run away from that. You should never lie about it um so it's like not getting caught up in your own hype yeah you know what i mean because because as much as we all talk about like you know 
as much as we all talk about these issues, everybody wants to post it on Facebook that you that I did this right. or I did blank or I did whatever. And you can't forget that like I did it, but like I was only there for there's a there's a reason I was there. Yeah. You know? Um So in that but in that how did that tension present in relationship to some of the artists that you were uh negotiating with to get him in the movie like i'm thinking about you being there being a musician who got your being an artist who got your stuff on tv and mm-hmm. got through these channels and then all of a sudden you're in you know in some ways a gatekeeper role for something that provides a whole lot of access and a yeah, whole lot definitely. of eyes did did it end up feeling transactional did it end up feeling weird with other artists there did it end up feeling great i mean i think the thing was is like dealing with other art i mean like i was definitely a gatekeeper right mm-hmm. um but I I saw it like as a chance to to like mold the way that the world for the most part the world would hear you got music. Right. You know what I mean? And move past the cliches yeah. and and the idea of like all African music is fucking tribal or some yeah. shit like that. You know? Obviously that's going away now because you have this huge breakthrough of Nigerian artists, yeah. but there's still people who don't understand that concept. Yeah. And then my relationships with artists, I mean, some of them I knew because I was also an artist within Uganda. Right. Some of them I did not know because they were way above who we were, right? And so they thought I was not even from Uganda because I'm right. a light-skinned brown dude, you know, who they've never heard of. Who can also who's, code, who's, code switch to Bowdoin. Exact, uh, code switch to Bowdoin, but like I'm stuff. emailing them on behalf of Disney. like So they right. don't think that I'm from like Buziga and right. Kampala. So, you know, over time, I'd like I have to do a lot of times in Kampala, like prove my... You got to miss, and then like we'd we'd be discussing things from a different way. Yeah. And I tried to make sure that I could actually help the artist as much as I could. I mean, everybody's gonna fucking say that, obviously. Right. But I truly do like because I don't have any allegiance to Disney. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't have any allegiance to like Right. I I see this as a once in a lifetime chance because let's be honest, there's not gonna how many more movies are gonna go back to Uganda with the reach like right. Queen of Katway? I mean, right now it's on Netflix and it has Disney on it and it means like people will watch this movie to a certain extent. So there would even be times where like I would take risks because I knew that I had the protection of my mother. Mm. Not that she would even know what I was doing, but just that my job security was higher. So like what? Like I would lie about what an artist told me the opening offer was because I knew that our budget could handle them having an opening offer double the amount. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, like that. You don't want to like that's fucked up. But it's like, but like at the end of the day, who's your allegiance? Like, yeah, we can handle that extra two thousand dollars, right? You know what I mean. And so there were a lot of artists who I would like talk to on the phone. Man, I really hope these Disney motherfuckers don't hear this, but they ain't gonna hear this. (laughs) The movie's already (laughs) out. out. But like, I would talk to on the phone. I'd be like, call me on the phone. We have a big listenership (laughs) at Disney corporate offices. Yeah, Uh, I'd be like, talk talk to me on the phone. Shout out Studio City. (laughs) Talk to me on the phone so that I can tell you how you should email me. Yeah. You know, because I know without us having to change our budget, I just know that we can afford this yeah. and I know that it actually deserves this. Because yeah. if you're an artist in Uganda, you don't have an experience dealing with what the pricing of my song should be if it's being played in a major, <laughs> in a major motion picture or how much should it be if it's being played over the titles? How much should right. it be if it's played? And the difference you see between Nigerian artists and Ugandan artists is Nigerian artists will hit you with like a, I want $40,000. It's like, yo, what the fuck? It's like, yeah. I don't have that kind of money. Like I got to, I ha- I spent like weeks talking people down in Nigeria right. because Nigeria, like there's a stereotype across Africa and even in the world of like this aggression, this assertiveness, this confidence. Yeah. And it's fantastic. And in Uganda, we have, 
people who like we will lowball ourselves yeah. a lot of times you know and there's just experience it's just an experience in Nigeria as well yeah, yeah. but I think there's also like this idea of an opening offer way beyond what yeah. I might even want for myself yeah. right and so you know just telling people like make that 2000 into 4000 make this into that um, yeah. very these are very convoluted answers no it makes you, sense yeah. and I'm thinking but I'm thinking about the like the gatekeeper role and, and being aware but just being aware of the position that you hold. And it's part of what I think makes, you know, it, it's one of the things that I think has kept us connected as friends is like, I think we share in some ways a similar sense of self-awareness mm. of like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bullshit myself. I know like I have a pretty good sense of who I am and how I take up space in this world. And I'm it's not going to stop me from making things. Yeah. It's not going to stop me from doing things and I'm going to get this done. Um, but I'm not going to skip over that. So I'm curious. I don't know. I think some of what's fun about this week of doing these one-on-ones rather than, you know, two people and, and one guest is I, I want to kind of turn the mirror a little bit or turn the, turn the lens a little bit. Um, for those who have like listened to the first 91 episodes of the radio show, and, you know, have heard little snippets of who I am, but it's always like from when I came to Chicago, there's like mm-hmm. very little New York talk. Um, what, what would you want? And it's a little self-indulgent, but what would you want listeners to know about who I am, who I was in high school, who I am now? Like what, how would you, yeah. How would you describe me to someone who wasn't me and didn't know me? I think, but I think, um, I think there are two separate questions of who, okay. you, who you were then and who you are now. I we think there's, there's obviously a thread, right? I think the thing that stood out is like the sincerity. Sometimes it was sincere to the point that like it was in such contrast to the way a lot of us would operate that it became easy to make a joke about, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I just remember that sincerity and that I, th- I think honestly, I think it's something that like, um, I wish more of us had at that age. Hmm. Um, I think you know you're also you're also the guy who missed out on the opening of the Glow in the Dark tour because you wanted to go to a JV baseball game. <laughs> I was playing at a JV. I didn't yeah. just. I wasn't just <laughs> sitting in the crowd. Yeah, but like those, you know, you were that that sincerity of your commitment yeah. to JV, you know. But it was like this commitment had been made. Um, Brief side note from that. So when we were at Glow in the Dark, so that was the, the Kanye tour that had Pharrell, Lupe, and Rihanna opening. Was Pharrell there? NERD was opening. Oh, shit. Um, which is incredible. And we went to Madison Square them. Garden. And we were sitting in the audience. And at one point we went, oh, shit, that's Matthew Santos, who's a singer from Chicago who sang the hook on Superstar and some other Lupe songs. Streets on Fire. Yeah, he's great. And we took a picture. He has a mohawk in it. We're just grinning like goons. It's a profile picture. Hilarious. Yeah. Fast forward four years. I'm in the middle of Iowa. I see he's passing through on tour. I email him. I say, hey, will you come up and do an interview for the radio show I was doing then? He gets off the highway. We do an interview. We take a picture. Fast forward to this past summer. I'm working this festival called Man Beyond the Beach in Chicago. I'm a transportation runner. I drive artists to and from the airport and the hotel and stuff. And I'm in the like um, like green room area. It's outside next to the lake. Beautiful spot. Um, and I'm like, I think I know that. Dude. I think that's Matthew Santos. And so I was like, hey, Matthew. And he turns around and we start talking. And I go, okay, hold on one sec. And I pull up the picture of us <laughs> from Madison Square Garden and he freaks out. And I was like, I don't know if you remember that. 
And I don't know if you remember the last time I asked you if you remember that in the middle of Iowa. So that was a nice moment. And I said that uh, I'd let you know if, uh, about it the next wild. time. So shout out to Matthew Santos. Shout makes out to beautiful music. I mean, he made some beautiful music. And I'm sure yeah. he's still making some beautiful music. I mean, that voice was wild. Yeah, no, for sure. So, I mean, like those are those are some things I remember. I remember, um, you know, but I still, I still like, you know, I don't want to big you up to the point of fault yeah. where I still remember like you know, the two of us were, were um, there's still like immature memories I have of the mm-hmm. two of us, you know, freshman, sophomore, junior year of high school. Um, and a lot of tension. And a lot of tension, to be honest. I mean, I think, I think, but then if we talk about the tension, it's less about you and more about me in terms of, mm. I mean, in, in terms of like, um, I just think that there was, that you had to deal with a lot of the immaturity, the the consequences of the immaturity of a friend group. Mm. You know what I mean? They manifested themselves in direction to you. Um, I'll also say I remember being in junior year honors English journalism class, and Miss Schoenfeld saying something like, "You know, it has been proposed that." Uh, that uh, attractive people have an easier run of it in life. And then you pipe, like, interrupted her immediately, and you're like, for personal experience, yes, I would agree. <laughs> and and we, I was just like, oh, my God, this is such an easy setup. Like, <laughs> There's also, we don't have to go deep down this road, but in that same class, we were writing short stories, and you asked if we could name the characters after real people. Mm-hmm. And she said no, and so you named your character Raniel Wrestlinger. I do remember that. I was... <laughs> Yeah, um, the, we don't have to go too far down that road. <laughs> but committed to the jokes. But I think like it's a, you know, it's part of why it's fun to have you on is because there's a, the stuff about the external work and then there's also like in some ways it's a story about a relationship between the two of us and that has definitely evolved. Um, and I don't know if you feel comfortable sharing, but I think it's like worth, if you're cool with it, talking about the Iowa conversation. And stuff yeah, like no, that. I mean, look, I... I can I can talk about that. I'm I just think. making our own mythology here, yeah. but I like it. It's fun. I'm down to go wherever. Yeah. Um, I was dating a girl in college and for and for some time after college, and she her part of her family lived in Iowa, continues to, uh, and so I would visit Iowa a bunch. And uh, Daniel went to uh, Grinnell, and there was one time when I was there. And you were also there, right? And we hadn't um, spoken in a couple years at that point. We hadn't spoken in some time. And my recollection of it is me hitting you up and asking if you were free um, and us meeting in Fairfield, Iowa. Um, and uh, basically, the, the reason I remember hitting you up was to apologize mm. because you were, you know, this feels, um, this, is, this is an interesting feeling. It's like now becoming more of a confessional. Well, so, um, yeah, this is cool. You know, you were a good friend of mine in high school, but I do feel, especially as I got older and got to look back on high school, that a lot of what I thought at the time, or never really actually even thought about, a lot of what I did and just let myself forget about or not think about critically, um, was actually more akin to just being mean Mm. um, and punching down or punching, you know, across um, for the sake of laughter and acceptance of others, right? And, and, and I don't want you to feel like I'm, you know, making this. I, the reason why I think this is good to include, in addition to just sharing our relationship, is like, you know, we spend a lot of time on the show 
talking about young people and talking about alternative education spaces and talking about like how schools in Chicago as they close them are failing folks and how, you know, artistic communities can be born when young people come together. And I think sometimes even as we try to humanize, uh, we lose sight of just how scary it is to be 15 and 16 years old and how you are making choices without the benefit of, like the tools of self-reflection a lot of the time. And you're just kind of like coming to a point and having to make a call and being scared. And, you know, so that's where the self-awareness of, you know. Yeah. I think it's, I look, I, I, the reason I'm willing to talk about it is because like it happened. Yeah. Right. And if you want to share it, I'm fine with that because then there's the, these are two parties involved. Right. But I think basically it's just like you tell yourself stories about who you are and who you were and you mythologize things, you know, you make them, you romanticize yeah. things. I was the good guy who made people laugh, right? But then if you think a little deeper and you hear your friends talking about their experiences in high school and you realize, well, actually, there are a lot of shades of gray here in terms of who I was and what I did. Um, And there are a lot of times where I think like you have to face accountability if you, especially now that everyone has this performative wokeness, right? You really have to, before you scream to the world, like think about who am I and what have I done? And how can I make those things right? Yeah. Uh, and really it took me falling in love mm. to realize what I had done that was wrong in the past. Mm. Right. Which sucks because it shouldn't take that. Like that's a ridiculous, like, you no, know, it's, you but know. it's in a very, it's a very effective strategy. It is. It is. Um, but you know, realizing that like you made, I made the decision for cheap laughs. Mm. I made the decision for approval and I simply did not value your feelings and feedback Mm. about jokes and names and whatever it was enough to stop doing those things. Mm. Right. Um, and I think you just have to, like, I just had to, ex- I think in the early years of college, just like accepting that, like that was fucked up, that bullying doesn't just happen with the most obvious candidates yeah. where there's pushing and rough out and like, you know, shoving someone into a locker and, obvious hatred it can also happen between very close friends yeah you know and like there's that dane cook sketch about the one friend that people shit on in the friend group and mm. i remember everyone thinking this 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 skit was hilarious and then like thinking back on it years later being like you should never have that friend and dane's t-shirt was too tight <laughs> yes he was on top of the world at that time but and yeah. his nips were just it's, poking straight through that out. cotton um but yeah but you should you know that if you have that friend in your friend group where you're always cracking jokes about this friend, there's a problem. Mm. Right. And I think this is like part of like, in some way I'm going to link this to like a lot of the people who come to Uganda to fix Uganda's problems. It's like everybody has problems at home and the best people suited to fix those problems are the ones who live there. Yeah. Cause you know, your home the best. Right. Right. And like, I think that that is true personally before we try and go out into the world, let's make sure that like, we are okay. Yeah. And And we don't even know what that means. I mean, this is something I've been thinking a lot about is that just grandly culturally, we have no idea what it means to heal. And then specifically within communities that have been, you know, affected by generations of violence, like there hasn't been time to figure out how to heal. And there isn't language to figure out what does it even mean to heal? Cause they're just, the second you like breathe and look around, the next boot is coming down and it's like, I've been reading this Grace Lee Boggs book uh, Mm -hmm. called The Next American Revolution, and it's written in 2008. And what she's talking about, you know, looking 
forward into an Obama era is this um, moment of us reconciling the fact that the things that we stand behind are eroding below us because they've never been as stable as we said they were. And instead, what had happened and is happening now is people doubling down on that weight and everything eroding faster. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I think the connecting the personal to the kind of macro is a re this is a good way to do it, right? Is to go like, how can we think about healing outwardly if we don't know what it means to heal inwardly and interpersonally and then like communally? Yeah. Um, you know, we, we have kind of this interpersonal example between us that I appreciate and think about a lot. And it's, you know, one of the few times in my life where a friend has come to, come to me that way. And it's like modeled that that's possible. So I appreciate you for that. Um, but for, for you, what has it meant to learn how to heal? Like what, it, what is healing looking like? Beyond just the high school friendships, just in general. Healing means, for me, healing means time. And also discussion. Mm. Um, and also doing so in the daylight hours. Hmm, what do you mean? Like, when you think about things before you go to bed, it can get dark, right? <laughs> you know, I'm talking about like, if it's heartbreak or if it's health, that environment like allows for all sorts of thoughts that yeah. really won't help you. Yeah. So if you think about it in the daytime, and if you also talk to people about it, you know, your closest friends you begin to be able to move and process. Um, and I think that healing also requires you to be honest with yourself of what's actually happening and what you're actually afraid of. Mm -hmm. When a parent is sick, you have to deal with all of these questions all of a sudden. And you need to have relationships with whom you can tell, talk to about these things. Because otherwise, you just have to condense these really deep and con complex emotions into, yeah, you know, we're making it through. Yeah. You know, quick little sound bites for people when they ask. I think that friends really saved me mm. in a lot of uh, these moments in the last year. Because my life kind of turned upside down in 2016. Like, on social media, it looked like everything was great. It, like, releasing songs, videos. Our song has a video with Lupita and David Ayelowo and whatever. It's... Yeah. 200,000 plus views like oh things look amazing um, but inside it's like both of my parents have medical issues I'm dealing with you know the ending of a long term relationship like all of these things I'm like, like my life is I'm like reorienting my life like trying to all of a sudden create a new life at the same time as being 24 and not knowing you know, what the next steps yeah. are and yeah so you have to have people who know you better than those profile pictures mm. but it's it's tough, man. Like, yeah, to 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 really prescribe something for people, but not for anyone else. Yeah, but for but you, but for me, yeah, it's, it's really it's really been friends, and it's been it's been honesty. Mm. Um, because sometimes you think you're dealing with things that you're really not dealing with. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a good. You think things. It's not even just things are under control, but it's like you think you're facing it head on, and it turns out you're actually just looking at the side of it, or the yeah. edge of it, or the corner of it. So what do you, whether it's like music-wise or just life-wise, what are you really excited about right now? Um, we didn't even talk about like politics shit, which that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, I mean, what, I mean, what am I excited about? I'm excited about my friends. Mm -hmm. You know, when I moved back to New York in October, I really like fallen in love with the city and, and my friends all over again. Not that I was ever out of love with them, but, but there's like a, 
that that new love feeling. You yeah. Know? Um, like I hang out with my friends like a, like a, like a little too much. <laughs> you know, people will be complaining about like the realities of what it means to be single in New York City. It's also like, do you really have time to meet anybody? Because you're having dinner with the same dude four times a week. Like, like you're going bowling you, three times you a have week. Like, <laughs> there is no room for anyone else in this yeah. world, in this life. Um, so I'm excited about my friends. I'm excited about. Um, I'm now, just like moving on to the next step in a lot of different aspects of my life. Um, and they're like long-term ideas that I've had of like things I want to do and. I'm just now like getting less and less worried about what people think. Mm. Uh, I still worry a lot about what people think, but I mean like, you know, you expect your life to go in somewhat of like a linear direction, Mm -hmm. right? Like if you've started making it, you will continue to make it. Right. But I went from all my friends seeing me as like this emerging rap star in Uganda. Right. With this, you know, huge cosign. Yeah. To then like making a song that has like 400 plays on SoundCloud. Yeah. Right. And then that's like a whole like reorientation of like, who am I actually? Yeah. You know, and where am I actually in my journey? Yeah. Um, can you be successful and failing at the same fucking time? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I think the answer is yes. And it's like, how can you show that? Because I think there's a lot, you know, the artifice of it, like not being able to show failure. Yeah. Specifically in hip hop. Specifically in hip hop, but I think also on social media, you can't just like, like, yeah. like yeah. I remember one time I posted something like, I thought life would be more certain, which isn't that downer of a, isn't that much of a no. downer statement, but I, I didn't, I do still think that I thought it would be, but I got like hit up with like messages and like calls yeah. like, yo, is everything good? Like everything yeah. all right? And it's like, there's only space for me to be like, my name's on a poster, right, right. <laughs> you know, like what's your favorite episode of right. this TV show or like, check out this article. So there's yeah. never room for like oh man like i'm lost <laughs> you know yeah. like there's not room for that and or or if you do post that it's like performative because right. then it's like everybody's gonna come for you and it's like yeah. what if i just want to shout things to the world and not care like it, what if i just want to like you know shout things into a tunnel that has an echo well, I happen to have been on your roof. It would be a good shouting spot. Shout outs to my roof. Shout out to your first place. I'm going to say yeah. first place I ever smoked weed was on your roof out of a water bottle. Legalize it. Yeah. <laughs> Not a political <laughs> statement here. I'm just saying that was the first time I smoked weed was on your roof. Um but you know, I think that's some of it, right? Is like actually not caring if anybody hears. Which is a funny thing to say when, like, I wanted to hang out with you, so I told you, let's record a podcast. Yeah. But, you know, it, really not caring if anybody hears and, and saying the things that you need to get off your, you know, off your heart, just out into the world. And, you like, know. yeah, it's, but it's tough, you know, because you constantly have these people you can compare yourself to. Mm-hmm. And it's constant. And, like, I sometimes play around with the idea of getting off of social media entirely because, like, it's tough when you open up Instagram and they're like, and you know it's fake. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it still affects you. Do you feel that pressure less when you're in Uganda? Yeah, I just didn't think about a lot of things back in Kampala. But I was also... It's it's not because like Instagram isn't in Kampala yet. It's like <laughs> because I was also so much more concerned with family all the time. Yeah, you're doing yeah. something that's grounded in place. You know? So I didn't like have room to like worry as much. Um. Now it's just like I'll be hanging out with a friend. The friend will post a picture of a thing we're doing together. Yeah. And while we're hanging out, I'll feel the urge to look at that picture. 
it's like what i'm still doing that <laughs> right or like later i'll look at the picture of my friend hanging out with me but i'm not in the picture and i'll look at that picture and be like damn i wish i was there it's like i was there like what was wrong you're, you're with you? having fomo for a thing you didn't miss out on <laughs> i was there like but like that's how that's how much it affects because yeah. you constantly feel like it's better than what you have yeah you know and and you can see that because there are times when we post things where we don't even feel that good about ourselves and then we make other people feel jealous for what we're not even happy with yeah yeah no it's true and i you know i mentioned before the mics came on like you talked about seeing me and shout out to rosie seeing me and rosie on there and like i've you know it's it's been a tension for me right like i've never been someone who has posted relationship stuff on facebook in the past or on social media like not for any like hiding it thing just in past relationships like have kept it private um and there's something about the excitement of this one that, like, I just want to shout to the world, rooftops, yeah. right? Um, but I said to her, shoutouts to uh, all the people who didn't give you the excitement. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you know, let me keep this one to myself. <laughs> no, but there's something about this that is so much, much better than heads and <laughs> <laughs> so fucked. No, yeah, shout out to the exes, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um as not as a category, as individuals. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> with agency. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Okay, I, look, yeah. I respect them very yeah, much. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> but it you know, I did come to a point a couple weeks ago where it was like I felt it moving from it being something that was a celebration to being a compulsion. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, the first time we like posted a picture together, she the very like tongue in cheek caption of like, "Okay, validate our cuteness." Yeah. That was what she wrote, and I thought that was hilarious. And then I was like, "Oh shit, I'm getting to a point where that's actually like what's happening." And you know, I, I, I that's just, that's just a tension that I'm going to keep wrestling with. But I think like part of what I like about our friendship is that it's like really moved away from any outward facing. Like I feel like our friendship, the two of us is about just the two of us yeah which is really nice um so i'm grateful for that any things you want to make sure get included or or like pieces about me or things that memories or or anything like that memories man uh i mean now you're back into the sneakerhead world which we, we we went deep we went deep yo we never spent the real money but I we mean, knew tops, about. We spent like I spent like one twenty once. I top. bought a pair of Tims and then left them on the bus on the way home and never got them back. The day I bought them, oh my god! Uh, tops, tops. I spent like one fifty. I still have a pair of high top dunks. You ever wear them? No, I because I don't even think they look good anymore. <laughs> I don't even. I used to think high tops, high tops were the were like the answer to all problems. I was coming out of the the new Lettuce Breeze space on Fifty First and Laughlin in Chicago, and I was wearing like high top adidas and jeans and i got just roasted on the Ugh. street these two uh it was like three like probably teenagers just from across the street just yells skinny jeans looking ass tight ass shoes looking ass <laughs> i was like yep. you're like that's me see you later come by and get a plate it's we got some food inside <laughs> um yeah man i mean i remember I think I caught my first pair of sneakers with you. My first pair of Dunks, mm-hmm. $90. You know, because a lot of our friends lived on the Upper West Side. Yeah. And we were like the first kids to like adventure into Brooklyn. I know, dude. Group. Beacon's Closet. Damn. Wow. But I mean, like, what else do I want to include? I mean, um, 
you know, I think this, it's this, it's interesting, this thing about like a friendship that exists only for the two of us, because I worry that, I worry that that joke of like, it, you know, Pixar didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Like I'm starting, there were there are days where I'm like, what is the point of pictures without social media? Mm. What is the point of pictures if it's just for you? And then like, what am I saying? <laughs> you know, like there should be enough within yourself that you want to, that yeah. it's okay to just have something alone or have something with a friend. Yeah. But now it's like, I, I don't know, man. Um, oh, I have something I wanted to circle yeah. back to. Um, and it kind of relates to this actually, to this relationship one-to-one. We are talking a little bit about, you know, your dad being a writer and a thinker with mm-hmm. some, not just prestige, but brilliant ideas and ways of synthesizing the world that... Shout you out know, Young Synthesis, that's, dad's early rap name. <laughs> Yo, Young th- Synthesis, drop that shit. Uh, from citizen good. to refugee, citizen to subject. Uh. Pretty, uh, pretty, pretty solid for like a like late 70s rap song. <laughs> um, but do you talk with him about like the ideas of his work like is because one of the nice things for me about being home is that like i have like these very long kind of philosophical conversations with my parents and that's like a pretty new thing shout out to your parents jambalaya (laughs) that shit is delicious um but yeah like are you at a point where you and your dad like talking about the world and like thinking about stuff together yeah i mean like i've we've always like dinner table conversations i've been blessed with my parents like I've always been forced to like reckon with things from an early age about what's going on. But obviously as you get older, you can get more in depth about things and um, I can actually read what it is that he'd like me to read from time to time. You know? <laughs> uh, like I did a project on, you know, Franz Fanon was a big focus of mine in, in college. And like we, you know, my, my dad really was very excited about that um, and like getting into that world of scholarship. But you know, like I also, now I'm at a point where like the circle is like somewhat, you know, becoming a circle and that I will help my parents like editing their mm-hmm. speeches or writings or just as like a, a fresh eye and like yeah. to make it more accessible. And that's awesome because I also get to stay engaged with what they're saying and doing. Yeah, You know, one of the conversations I've had with my father is like about being a minority. Mm. Like I'm a minority everywhere, right? I don't know if we've talked about this before, but it's like in Uganda, I'm Asian in America. I'm Brown in India. I'm Muslim. Like there's no place where things are all right. Mm. Um, And you can just walk out the house and not worry. And a lot of times, you know, I struggle with that, but like with my dad and we've talked about it again, we talk about it like it's a running conversation, but it's, you, him telling me like his life's lesson is that you also get to see the truth the most as a minority in society. Mm. You don't have to deal with, you don't have to believe your own hype right. of the benevolent majority. Right. You know, the myths aren't true. You know, the myths aren't true because you're the truth. Right. In some, you know, you're the inconvenient, right. <laughs> like you have to live the inconvenient side of yeah. what everybody's been preaching. Yeah. Um, so we definitely discuss a lot of these things. Um, That's an interesting idea. Because I've been, you know, I've been thinking a lot about uh, how enfranchisement works for uh, immigrant communities and first and second generation communities in the United States. You hit up McDonald's, you're like, yo, <laughs> you want to get a franchise running? Let's get this franchisement <laughs> no, going hard. That's getting edited out. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about how enfranchise works for first and second generation communities. Because, you know, so my grandparents, 
live in Syosset, Long Island. You know, my they moved to the to the burbs when my mom was was super young. Um, or right before they moved to the burbs right before my mom was born. And now, you know, sixty years later, the whole neighborhood is uh, Korean American and Indian American. Shout out, shout outs. And so the, I'm looking at these houses, right? That now are full of young families for the first time in 50 years. And I'm thinking about how, and even being in Bronx science and, you know, I'm, I've just, I've been thinking about the way that that navigation of enfranchisement works and the, the way that doors are cracked open and then closed. And then another one's cracked open and then like, like the, the, the teasing of access to a full enfranchisement that then gets taken away. When you say enfranchisement, you mean, I mean like participation in, in a full democracy type of thing. No, I mean society. that you are the beneficiary of violence rather than the um, object upon which violence Ooh. is perpetrated. Because, yeah. I, you know, my context, of course, is, is around Jews. Um, and Shout outs. Hey, gang gang. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Day ones. But, you know, when we talk about like learning how to heal, like we've had a moment in this country where the boot hasn't been on our neck. And instead of figuring out how to heal, we took the opportunity to become the oppressor. Yeah. Um, and I think about that and I watch, you know, other, I watch in Chicago how, you know, second and third generation Mexican-American communities, you know, are moving to the burbs and becoming police officers and the officers who shoot, you know, many of the high profile murders in Chicago of black teens are by brown officers. Um, and that's just one example. But I, I just... I, I'm hearing you what you just said about like you know that the myths aren't true, but they're very alluring myths. <laughs> but see, the thing is, is if you're always a minority, mm. there's a difference because a lot of the people of color in this country come from places where they're the majority. Right. I'm not trying to be like, and so I'm the most pure and best. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's just to say like you do have the satisfaction of certain myths somewhere. Right. You know. Um, and as, as I still do, like, you know, minorities still have their own communities, right. right. In which you become your majority in your little world. But it's just to say that, like, I'll connect this to something that's been on my mind a lot, which mm -hmm. is that when we say the term, the term people of color, we lull ourselves into thinking that it is like one team to, to use right. Hari Kondabalu's parlance, yeah. right. That. 48% white yeah. people, 52% you people. Yeah, and it's like, shout outs to my dude. He's right. <laughs> a signed poster of him sitting on the bench right here. No, he's been sitting um, on the bench yeah. quietly this whole episode. Um, but you start to get lulled that it's basically like a group of people who think alike and are alike and have some sense mm -hmm. of harmony. And the reality is, is that that simply does not exist um, for a large part. You know, yeah. I think a lot of... Um, and a lot of progress that we need to happen, it first has to come like in our own very specific communities. Like we have to talk about the anti-blackness within Indian communities. Yeah. Like that shit is huge. Right. You know what I'm saying? And um, there's and you can, can connect it to other contexts, right? So you can connect if you want to talk about like you know you can talk about anti-blackness and colorism within a black community in relationship to, you know, like there are ways to weave these together to like help folks not just reflect how they're looking at someone else, but also reflect how they're looking at each other. Like, and, I th and I think a lot of times like, you know, we have this idea of like the racist 
white, the white racist grandparent. Mm-hmm. I mean, all these fucking articles about mm-hmm. like, oh, my grandma's a Nazi, but I love her type of shit. Mm-hmm. And I think people forget that like, <laughs> we too have really fucked up racist views in our older generations, yeah. if not in our present generations as well, but right. definitely in our older generations. Like, you know, and there's this idea that if you're a person of color, then like, you know, we're all together and we're all all right about right. this stuff. But it's like, if you really want to know like how far along are we and you're an Indian American, like go and ask your parents about Kashmir and what they think about like the world's largest military occupation. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we have a lot of work to do in our, in our, in our communities. And I think yeah. a lot of times we end up, it's, it's alluring to feel self-serving. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that sentence makes sense, yeah. but you know, the, 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 what I'm trying to get across and, and like, we just want to build into existing American narratives, which won't actually get us to a lot of the places we have to go. Mm-hmm. You're saying a lot of brown officers are the ones who kill a lot of unarmed black teens in Chicago. A lot of Islamophobia is not, it's, I mean, like, you know, a lot of times it is white men, right. probably a majority of the time, but there mm-hmm. are also occasions where it's not white men. And there is a lot of virulent Islamophobia. Like there was this older Bengali auntie, Nazma Khanum, who was, who was murdered on the streets of Queens less than a year ago um and the man who did so was a young hispanic man Mm. and it's just to say like we have to look deeper than than what's fed to us sometimes if we want to actually see how far and wide issues have spread and recognize that coalition is work coalition can't be inherent for anybody you know i've been reading and we should wrap soon but yeah. I've been reading about oh, yeah. yeah I know it could go forever um, I've been reading yeah. and watching this uh, this is documentary called American Revolution 2 which is about coalition work happening in Chicago in 68 so you had the Brown Berets which was Mexican and Mexican American you had the Young Lords which was Puerto Rican you had the Panthers and you had the uh, Young Patriots which was Appalachian Whites poor Appalachian Whites in Chicago and they were doing like real coalition work like the documentary shows Bob Lee, who is the head of the Panthers, going and sitting in the meeting of the Young Patriots. And like, of course, these poor white dudes are like very skeptical at first. And then over the course of the meeting, they like connect humanly. Like they get it. And by the end, they're like, okay, what do you need? We're down. And what can you give us? And like the coalition work means showing up there. You can't assume, um, yeah, like you're saying, that there's anything inherent in terms of like, we have to do that work. I mean, you're yeah. right. Like, yeah, that work has to be done. And, and I think, but it's hard, right? Yeah. It's, it's easy to, to downplay where we are also wrong. This is not to say that we all have the same faults or right. like white supremacy is just as bad as brown supremacy. Like, right. you know, the, there are things that are greater problems than other things, but we shouldn't ignore the existence yeah. of problems. Just, yeah. In general, in the interest of healing, not exactly. in the interest of blaming, but in the interest of being exactly. Like, and I, we're trying to like, get, we're trying to like get free. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. And no, we, it's not going to work without that kind of stuff. Without everybody coming to the table and seeing how am I benefiting off of what exists? Yeah, because we there are people right. there are you know like and as dudes you know that's yeah the other and as piece people of it. yeah yeah I think in that in that spirit when we talk about accountability, this takes us to maybe the most important part of our conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, as Damon likes to say, there is a sect of the population that has run amok. Rampant. 
absolutely out of control. Um, and, and there is no check on them. And that's part of what we provide here at Ergo. Um, R&B singers are out of control. Wild. From the beginning of Motown to Tory Lanez. Uh, Shout out to Tory Lanez. If you were to start beef with an R&B singer, who do you have beef with? I know we talked about this beforehand. Mm-hmm. And I know it's the easy answer. But I would aspire to do to R. Kelly what Hannibal did to Bill Cosby. Okay. Okay, that's a different take. I'll, I'll allow it. Because all the evidence exists. Yeah. We know about it. Mm-hmm. But nothing has clicked as yet about R. Yeah. And I think that when I release my third track that's going to get, let's be honest, be humble here, 800 SoundCloud plays. Okay, okay. R. Kelly's going to know it's good. Oh, and yeah? it's going to spiral. Okay, I like this. There's going to be one shittily recorded cell phone video that's going to blow up on Twitter. Let me hear. Fuck. Oh, R. Kelly. <laughs> yeah, go to Google. Search what he did. <laughs> I like this. But yeah, I would say, I mean, I just think like it's fucked, man. Like, I'm not arguing about the quality of the man's music or the quality of the man's stolen ideas or whatever those things are. I'm just saying that I don't think dude has ever really had to deal with Not the all. consequences of his actions. Um, and so this is time. This is this what is you time. can take this on. The, this is the new beef. I like this. Unknown rapper. I like that you're taking this on as your mantle. Shouts out. Shouts out. You. Robert Kelly. Robert. <laughs> and they said, Robert. You're out the paint. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Before we get out of here, um, I don't know if you still want to do it. Any uh, Anything you want to share with us performance-wise? I don't really think I have it in me today. Okay, um, that's fine. You don't have to. I can tell you, I'm trying to make a trap song about my grandmother. Okay. Okay. Yeah. How, uh, it's like, how's starts that going? Off, it's like, Nani, from the back say, Nani, all my girls say, Nani, all my guys say, Nani. <laughs> and then that shit drops. Do you have a release date for that? No idea. We'll keep an eye I'm out I'm trying for to get my Nani which means grandmother uh, from my mom's side. You going to get her on the feature? I'm trying to get her in the video. I'm trying to get uh, her to rap my lyrics. That's pretty good. And her to just be whooping people's asses. She's really holding the music supervisor over the <laughs> <on> this one. <laughs> nutty, nutty, nutty. Oh, that's great. I like it. Uh, where, can, uh, where can folks find, uh, find the music you've put out so far? How can they stay in tune? So... I have music under two names. I have music under the first stuff that we've created, which was Young Cardamom and Hob. That's still on every platform, SoundCloud, YouTube, you know, Spotify, Apple Music, everything. Um, and then I released two songs under my given names, um, two of my given names, Zoran Kwame. I released a song called Salam and a song called No Fruits at Night, both of which are also available at all of those digital outlets. Um, but yeah, you know, if you want to get your homie up to, you know, what is it? 408 plays. Hey man, piece by piece. Be the guy. This is about to put you on. You know, you I know? mean, I know you talked on beats one, but like this, really, <laughs> this, this is, is really this is the this look. Is, this is when I know R. Kelly's going to hear me. Mm-hmm. I've called dude out on multiple platforms. He's not yeah, responding he's not listening to, to beats one, but we are Chicago. You know what I'm saying? Know, you are now tuned in to, <laughs> what is your new DJ name? DJ empathy. Still. still on right, DJ I empathy. think that shit is fire. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the cosign. DJ empathy. Yeah. You know what it is. I'm always here for you. Here for me. Maybe we'll, th- that could be your new you want to give a little DJ drop yeah uh, you now listening to DJ Empathy that was pretty good pretty, yeah. pretty I also want to have a DJ drop that's Larry David going 
pretty, pretty, pretty good. <laughs> That's going to be great. Thank you so much for talking with me, Z. Oh, man, it's been such a pleasure, man. It's always a pleasure. We, uh, we'll be back next week with another strong young voice from Chicago and beyond. Check out Damon's conversation with Allende this week. Shout out to Allende. We're bringing you the double episodes. Don't complain. I don't want to hear a word. This is like six hours of ergo. Talk to you next week. Talk to me. Peace. Wake up in the morning, be like, Baba, where you sugar at? 5.6, 6.7, look at that. He kills his numbers, do the math. One more quarter, have a path. Got you on that same path. Watch my fam, feel my wrath. My diabetic, aesthetic, a white rice, heretic. We've been eating on credit, so now the body indebted. So now I'm chatting, statin, and fattin' and medical patents and notions of motions and lotions and green juice potions. So my money's on the diet, so my fam don't die yet. Sometimes I be crying, cause family's my life.